If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 16. One of the greatest blessings that I have received from the Lord was my Christian upbringing. I was raised by Christian parents who desired to love the Lord their God with all their heart, their soul, and mind, and strength, and to teach their boys about this God, to present Jesus to him, to us, in word and in deed. And I think through many of God's other blessings, like my wife and and children and the churches that I attended, and I can see a direct link from what my parents taught me and the values they instilled, how they directed me to those other blessings. I credit my Christian upbringing on my amazing Christian parents. Now, they weren't perfect parents, you see. Here it comes, Dad. (laughs) I was a child that grew up in the 70s and 80s, and as we all well know, that was a difficult time to parent. If you look through the hairstyles and the outfits that my parents allowed me or put me in, it was negligent at best and criminal at worst. I was a freshman in high school before seatbelts were mandatory in California, so they just threw us in the back and hoped for the best. An average summer day consisted of me leaving after breakfast unsupervised with my buddies and coming back right before dinner. They had no idea what I was doing, where I was, if I was in trouble, out of trouble. And if you remember the playground and equipment that they allowed us to play on during those years, metal slides that would give you third-degree burns as you slid to your death, 25-foot instruments of death, or the jungle gym that would allow you to hang 15 feet from some hard concrete-like floor, And when you fell, you were guaranteed a concussion, a sprained ankle, or a broken ankle. And the not-so-merry (laughs) go-around that sent you flying to your doom. And if you did have the ability to hold on, you were going to vomit at the end anyway. (laughs) Those were really good days. (laughs) But besides those terrors, God was so kind to give me my parents. As I think through my upbringing, I remember two very clear foundational realities that they shared with us and reminded us of constantly. And those two realities impacted how I lived my life. And those two realities impact me now at 50 in how I live my life. The first reality was that there were expectations that needed to be met, and if those expectations were not met, there would be consequences. Over and over again, those expectations were brought up. Over and over again, those consequences either administered or warned about. I can't tell you how many times my dad told me to mind my P's and Q's. I still don't know what a P is, and I think I know what a Q is. But I knew that meant there were rules and expectations and that no matter where I was, no no matter what setting I was in, if it was in church, at school, at someone else's house, hanging out with friends with no adult authority, that there were things that I was to do and not to do. And if I didn't behave according to their expectations, 
there was some form of discipline coming. And I've got to grant my parents, they were creative in that form of discipline. They at times took something away from me that I wanted, or they gave me a dreaded chore, or they sent me to my room, or they administered the paddle to my back end. But there was a consequence to my actions. The second reality that was equally preached to us was very different to that. And that was that they loved us with an unending love. And that no matter what, we could come for them for help. They would always accept us. That they were our greatest cheerleaders and their love would never change. As I think through many of our not-so-wise decisions, Steve and I put that promise to the test. I remember times when even though they had to administer the rod, or I had failed a, a literal or figurative test, or I embarrassed them through inappropriate public behavior, they would take their hands and put it on my shoulders. They would look me in the eye and they would tell me that they loved me, that they desired my best, and that they would always love me. These two realities are drastically different, but they were foundational in how I interacted with the world, how I acted at school, how I acted with my peers, how I acted at church, when I took a test in a job interview, or when I was in my home. In success or failure, in victory or defeat, those realities drove me to act in certain ways, and I had emotion based upon those two realities. Well, for the next two Sundays, I would like to direct our attention to two biblical realities that should impact every single one of our lives. Two realities that are communicated in the scriptures that are designed not only to help us to see what is going to happen in the future, but two realities that impact us every day in the here and the now. I'd like to talk to us about hell and heaven. Hell and heaven, one of those two destinations each member of humanity will spend their eternity in. And it is good for us to know what God has said about those things, for we will be either enjoying it or in agony through it through eternity. But he shares these with us not only for that knowledge, but also for how it impacts our lives today. These two realities are communicated frequently in the scriptures, either directly or indirectly. But unfortunately, they're not focused on much today. Jeff Stebbins found out that I was going to be preaching on hell, and he had a book that he thought would be helpful, and he handed it to me, and it was extremely helpful. But it's out of print. Shouldn't be shocked by that. Who wants to study? Who wants to do a men's study on hell? Two certainties that maybe are not popular, but two certainties that absolutely impact how we live our present lives, even though those two realities are speaking of the life to come. The reality of hell and the reality of heaven 
and that all of humanity will experience one or the other. That those are the two eternal destinations of humanity after this life is over. And friends, make no mistake, God's word is abundantly clear that when our time on earth is over, we will find ourselves in one of these two realities. And God wants us to understand these two realities, not only to ensure that we repent and turn to him, but for, the, for many other reasons as well that we'll talk about in the next two weeks. So for the next two weeks, we want to look at what God has revealed in his word and how that revelation should affect our thoughts, our actions, our words, our emotions, and even our praise. Yes, hell should cause us to praise the Lord. Today, our focus will be on the reality of hell, and next week, our time will be spent, God willing, diving into the glorious truth of heaven. Our outline for this study is rather straightforward. We will begin our time looking at what the Bible says about the reality of hell, and then we will look at our response to that reality. Well, let's go to God's Word in Luke chapter 16 and verse 19. And see what God has to say in this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abram, Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father, this is a clear and terrifying reality that there is a place of judgment and that this is the natural condition of all humanity to go there. 
that because of our sin, because of our rebellion, we are destined to this place. Father, your sweet kindness has been that you are warning us to flee the wrath to come. That you are sharing in your word what hell is, and it is a warning for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to understand it, and Lord, may it motivate in us praise to you, gratefulness to you, action in ministry, action in evangelism. Lord, help us to recognize the truth of hell. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, we're going to begin by looking at the reality of hell, and then we will look at the response to that reality. There is much debate if this parable of the rich man and Lazarus is simply an illustrative story that Jesus used to teach this lesson here in this parable, or is it a depiction of two actual men in their current state that Jesus was using to teach a lesson? The reason why there is debate is that this parable echoes much of what is taught throughout the scripture about what hell is like. And this is the only parable of Jesus where he uses the name of an individual. And so as someone is reading this, they begin to wonder, is he talking about a man named Lazarus? But regardless, the story contains the account of two possible, the two possible destinations of humanity, of mankind. And it highlighted both the glory of heaven, but also, and more so, the horrors of hell. This parable is extremely helpful for us as it informs us of the consequences and the results of life after death. That when our life is over here, when we breathe our last breath here, that it isn't over. That there is something else, and it is possibly the greatest thing or it is possibly the absolute worst thing. The Bible speaks of the reality of hell in the same terms as the reality of heaven. The individual, the, the, <clears throat> the uh, denomination that wants to remove hell, that wants to teach that we just stop being, they would have to deny heaven to deny what the Bible says about hell. At the end of the Bible, at the end of Revelation 20, and at the beginning of Revelation 21, in verses 14 and 15, and then in 21, 21, and 2, these two are combined, put together. This hellish hell and this heavenly heaven are put together so that we see that both are true. Both are realities. Both are happening at the same time. In fact, Jesus spent more time warning people about the dangers of hell than comforting them about the reality of heaven. The concept of a real, conscious, forever and ever existence in hell is just as biblical as a real, conscious, forever and ever existence in heaven. Trying to separate them is simply not possible from a biblical standpoint. To deny the reality of hell means you must deny the reality of heaven. And to deny the reality of hell, you must identify Christ as a liar. You must must identify that he 
and many other of the authors of Scripture were lying. Hell is real. Hell is biblical. Hell is communicated to us as a reality. It is clear from this depiction in this parable of the eternal destiny of this rich man that there is a hell and this hell is agony. The Bible describes hell as the place where those who reject Jesus Christ will experience the wrath and justice of God for all eternity. Theologian Wayne Grudem defines hell as a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. The judgment and justice of God is mentioned mainly in the Old Testament, and the details of hell are mentioned mainly in the New Testament. You don't need to read very far in the Bible to see that God, while he is a God of love and mercy, is also a God of wrath and justice. Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 states clearly that a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. That is as true and as important for each one of us as believers as John 3.16. As a matter of fact, we can't truly understand John 3.16 until we grab a hold of this concept of who God is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That, that love cannot be recognized, cannot be understood outside of the truth that God is an avenging God. It's easy for us to believe that God would create a place like heaven because we dwell and meditate and think about his goodness. We think about his kindness. We think about his mercy. We think about his grace. And the creation of heaven is simply a manifestation of those attributes. Aren't you glad that God is a good God? Aren't you glad that God is merciful and kind and that he would create a place like heaven for us? But in the same light, if we meditate on God's holiness, if we focus on his justice, if we contemplate his vengeance and wrath, then we can logically also comprehend hell. If we think of his holiness and his inability to have anything to do with sin, we can grasp the concept of hell. If we meditate on his justice and and that all sin must be dealt with, then we can conceive of a place of such horrible torment. God's holiness and justice are seen throughout the entire Old Testament and immediately put in display in the third chapter of Genesis. After the first sin committed, God responds to the rebellion of Adam and Eve and brings judgment in the garden. We are three chapters in, friends, and we see this attribute manifested. We see the rebellion of Israel throughout her history, and we see God blessing her in her obedience and judging her in her rebellion. We see it in the time of Moses and Joshua and Judges and the kings. We see him bring judgment to Israel through defeat and illness and death and having evil authority placed over them and deportation and captivity. His wrath and judgment are spoken in the Pentateuch, those first five books of the Old Testament, And in the history 
literature, historical literature, and the poetic genre, and throughout the prophets, justice, wrath, holiness mentioned over and over again. And we receive the repeated theme that God is a holy God and cannot tolerate sin. And he will not, and he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And it is through all of the Old Testament as we move from left to right in our Bibles. It is often said that the Old Testament reveals a God of wrath while the New Testament reveals his mercy and grace. But interestingly enough, it is not until we get to the New Testament where we actually get details about this hellish destination. It is in the New Testament where we hear John the Baptist speak of hell. We hear Jesus speak of hell. We hear Peter and Paul and Jude and the Apostle John speak of the reality of this place of judgment. So how do they describe it? Well, the English New Testament translates three different Greek words as hell. Gehenna, Hades, and Tartarus. Of the 22 uses of those words in the New Testament, 14 are spoken by Jesus. This Savior to the world, this this kind and gentle shepherd, he is the one who refers to and wants us to understand the concept of hell. Jesus used the Greek word Gehenna 11 out of its 12 uses. Jesus used uh, this term that Jesus used, Gehenna, is a Greek form of two Hebrew words, Ge and Hinnom, meaning the Valley of Hinnom. And this term originally referred to a ravine on the south side of Jerusalem where pagan deities were, uh, were worshipped, but it became a, a garbage dump. It became a place where garbage and dead bodies of animals and criminals were burned. And so there was a constant burning, a constant smell. If Jesus spoke of this in Jerusalem, they would immediately understand what he was referring to. And so it became synonymous. This Greek word Gehenna became anonymous with a place of abomination, a place of continuous burning, of eternal punishment. But Jesus, in his references to hell, didn't necessarily use the word hell. He used, he would refer to, to what happened there or what was going on. And he referred to it as the furnace of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And much like that, the writers in the epistles, they did not use the term hell as much, but spoke of it in terms of the consequences experienced like the place of destruction, the place of judgment, the place of darkness, the place of retribution. The Bible describes hell in such vivid terms. It doesn't give us significant details, but it does give the description of it. In Luke chapter 12, verses 46 through 48, it is called a place of punishment where we reap for eternity what was sowed in this life. In Matthew 8.12, it's called a place of outer darkness, where we are removed from the light, 
God being the light. And we are removed from the blessing of God, which is the light of God for all of eternity. In Revelation 12, 10, it is described as a lake of fire where you will experience agony and pain and be confined into that space. In Matthew 13, 42 and 50, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of tears for what you're experiencing and holding your teeth together as you experience it and you agonize. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, a place of eternal separation from God. And Mark 9, 43 through 48, probably for me the most terrifying, a place of torment where the worm does not die nor where the fire is quenched. This punishment never dissipates. It never goes away. It is constant. It is eternal. It is forever. These are graphic images of eternal punishment. And they speak of mental and sensuous torment, of unfulfilled desires, of of a loneliness, a hopelessness, a restlessness, and a conscious recognition of the terrible experience of facing God's fiery wrath. Add to these types of description that hell is endless. Those that find themselves there are in an eternal state that include these terrors. I read it before, but I'll read it again. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Look at verse 26 in the passage before us. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed. We don't go there and experience it for a time, a purgatory, and then are released out of it. It is a great chasm fixed. Those going to hell will be eternally separated from God, but the scriptures teach us that there, there is a two kind of states of hell. The first is for those that die and their souls go immediately to Hades and they await the great white throne of judgment. And the second state is the eternal state where we are given new bodies just as we are in heaven. And we will be thrown in the lake of fire with Satan forever and ever. As it says in Revelation chapter 20, be tormented day and night forever and ever. There seems to be very little difference between the experience of the uh, intermediate state and the eternal state. We are looking in uh, Luke chapter 16 at the, the intermediate state where there is agony. And while there isn't a body, they still feel kind of sensuous pain, and so it is the same. But Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, indicates that both believers and non-believers alike will have resurrected bodies on that last day. Bodies that are fit for agony, 
fit to feel the agony of this unquenchable fire, but fit also to endure the burning. Does that not, is that not horrifying? So that it will not be destroyed. R.C. Sproul aptly writes, There is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. It is so unpopular with us that few would give credence to it at all except that it comes to us from the teaching of Christ himself. J.I. Packer also writes, New Testament teaching about hell is meant to appall us and strike us dumb with horror, assuring us that as heaven will be better than we could ever possibly dream, so hell will be worse than what we could conceive. Now before moving on to how we should respond to this terrible reality, we need to consider who will occupy this hellish destiny. Who is damned to hell? Who is headed to hell? Hell, as explained in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, was created for the punishment of the devil and his angels. But because of every human being, because every human being is a sinner, all humanity has already been condemned to hell and will join this devilish crew. Romans chapter 10, sorry, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, There is none righteous, not even one. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as one man entered into the world and death through him, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Hell is where God punishes sin. Each one of us in this room has sinned. Therefore, our sins are going to be punished in hell And we are doomed to that destination. Sin is simply defined as transgressing the law of God and rebelling against God. It is not loving God as we ought. It is not worshiping God as we ought. It is not obeying God as we ought. It is not imaging God as we ought. And since we all sin... We all deserve hell as the just punishment for our rebellion against God. Romans 6, 23 says, The wages of sin is death. The death of eternal punishment. Hell is an eternal punishment for those who do not know nor obey him. We saw that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says that in the end, God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Our punishment is based on our rejection of him, and our punishment is based upon our rejection of his word. That's why in Revelation 20, verse 13 and 14, the apostle records the repetition that judgment is according to their deeds, their continual rejection of God's commandments. Outside of the work of God in our lives, outside of us being born again, Jesus was clear in John 3 in saying that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. John 3.18 explains in the simplest terms who will go to heaven and who will go to hell. 
Whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We all deserve to go, but there are some that don't. There are some that have found the narrow gate. There are some that have been bestowed upon with grace, and they have believed on the name of Jesus. Paul declared in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Unless one has turned to Christ, unless one has placed their faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, believed in him as an actual person who lived an actual life and accomplished this actual saving work on our behalf, their sins will cast them into this fiery place of judgment. So for all humanity, outside of Christ's work on their behalf, this is their destination. That is why Jesus talked about two gates, and one gate being so wide and one being so small. So what is our response to that reality? Second point of our outline. What are we to do with this truth? What are, we, what are we to do with this doctrine that is clearly communicated in God's word? How does it apply to us in this room? It is not simply shared so that we will have more head knowledge, so that we can correct someone who may come to our door and tell us about the afterlife and what it is and what it isn't. It is shared to bring understanding, yes, but also to move us to action. Hell and its reality must move us to action. That is why it was communicated. I think of the, the story of, of John the Baptist as he's, he's baptizing in the, in, in, the, in the river. And he sees individuals coming and he's, he's trying to, to, to cause them to change their life. And he begins to talk about hell. He saw the need for a response, and we see a need for a response. For the time remaining this morning, I'd like to present four responses or applications to this reality. If hell, if hell is real, then what? The reality of hell, number one, should cause us to examine our own hearts. Friends, if hell is the destination of all humanity because all humanity is sin, the simple question each one of us must ask is how can I be saved from this punishment, this judgment? How can I be saved from this hell? God will pour out his wrath on sin. 
He can do no other. That is what his holiness and his justice mandates him to do. But how then can I be saved? How can I avoid this punishment? There's no more important issue than our eternal destiny. And thankfully, the Bible is abundantly clear on how a person is to be saved. And each one of us in this room, unbeliever and professing believer, should go through this mental exercise. 2 Corinthians 13 says that we are to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. So if you are a professing believer, don't check out. Don't wait for me to get to point two. This is for you as well. This is for me as well. The Philippian jailer in Acts 16 verse 30 asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what a polite man, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas responded, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Because God is holy and just, he must judge sin. So we either are going to be the recipient of that wrath or we must find a substitute to take that wrath for us. And Paul and Silas direct this Philippian jailer to the substitute, to the one who will bring about salvation. The just penalty of sin is infinite and eternal, and only God can pay that penalty because only he is infinite and eternal. But God in his divine nature could not die. So God became a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. God took on human flesh. He lived among us. He taught us when the people rejected him, when the people rejected his message and sought to kill him, he willingly sacrificed himself for us allowing himself to be crucified. And make no mistake, the agony of Jesus' death was not simply the agony of the physical death on a cross. It's Acts 53. I'm sorry, Isaiah 53. God crushed him. God pierced him. He poured out his wrath upon Jesus. As we think back about what the reality of hell is, as we think about those graphic terms of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of this unquenchable fire, that is the wrath of God perfectly placed on those that deserve it. And Jesus took that on at the cross. Jesus, being a human, could die because Jesus Christ was God. His death had an eternal and infinite value. Jesus' death on the cross was perfect and complete for the payment of your sins and my sins. He took the consequences we deserved. If God's wrath was a cup, if, if, if God's wrath was, was, was the liquid in a cup, he poured it out completely on Christ. And there is no, none left for us. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts 16, 31, and you will be saved. And God is offering that gift to you today in this room. He is offering you, a sal you salvation as a gift. All you have to do is accept it. Jesus is the way of salvation. 
believing in him, understanding your sin, understanding that wrath, understanding what you deserve, recognizing that Jesus took that wrath for you, and believing in Jesus, that is what saves you and keeps you from the reality of hell. Friends, if hell is a reality, and the Bible communicates it as that, we don't know exactly when our time on this earth is complete. And so we must examine our hearts to see if that is truly what we believe today. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We are not guaranteed next week. Paul, as I mentioned before in 2 Corinthians 13, says that those within the church professing believers are to test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Jesus said that it is clear that we can be deceived, and we must continually examine our hearts to see if our faith is found in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, rather than our own, our own works. Guys, remember the Sermon on the Mount at the end in Matthew 7? Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father and who is, who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These are professing believers professing ministers, professing servants, but they did not place their faith fully on Christ. They did not obey Christ's word, and they were not saved. If hell is real, then we must examine our hearts. Number two, the reality of hell should cause us to preach the gospel to the lost. We see that in our text by the unsaved rich man who is in the midst of torment he has just been told that the chasm is fixed that that no one can come from there to here and here to there and verse 27 he says then i beg of you father that you send him to my father's house for i have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment It was so bad, it was so agonizing that he wanted his brothers to not experience it. That is the heart of an unredeemed man. How much more should that be a heart of those of us that have been saved? We don't want God's creation to experience this. If we have a true biblical understanding of the reality of hell and its torments, our hearts should be broken for the lost, for that is their destiny. As we contemplate its horrors, as we imagine a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked, we should speak forth the mystery of Christ to save them from such a destiny. Now that's how, and this is how we fulfill both the great commandment And the Great Commission. The Great Commandment is found in Matthew 22. It says that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. We should love our neighbor as ourselves. As we declare the excellency of God's love, the perfection of Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, we are both loving God by 
declaring him and recognizing those things to be true, but we are pointing people to him and we are demonstrating love for them. The love commanded in this great commandment is a sacrificial love that seeks the welfare of the one love. And there is no greater welfare than the eternal destination of the soul. To say that you have loved your neighbor, to say that you have loved your enemy and not communicated the gospel, those two things don't link up. There is no greater love. If we are to love our neighbors, if we are to love our enemies, if we are to love the nations, we must declare the gospel. We are to preach that hell is where they are headed unless they turn to Christ for salvation. If we are not evangelizing, we are not obeying the great commandment. And we are more concerned about how we are viewed or treated than where someone else is spending eternity. But not only is the great commandment a part of this, the great commission in uh, Matthew 28, and it commands us to go into all the world and make disciples. Disciple making begins with evangelism. Evangelism begins by sharing with people where they're headed and what God has offered through Christ. We cannot communicate We cannot fulfill the Great Commission unless we communicate the glories of heaven and the agonies of hell. If we are to make disciples, we must echo the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad and leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. There are few who find it. When we contemplate the realities of hell, we should be moved as Paul was. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. As he contemplates God's righteous wrath with the destiny of his beloved kinsmen, the nation of Israel. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated for Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That led him to his ministry, that pushed him to go and to share Christ with the lost, first with the Jew and then to the Gentile. What we know about hell should push us to communicate to the lost. Thirdly, the reality of hell should cause us to truly understand and hate our sin. We have all heard the saying that the punishment must fit the crime. We're offended when the crime and the punishment aren't equal. When the crime is worse than the punishment, or the punishment is worse than the crime. And our justice, and that feeling of justice rises up in our heart. Well, hell is the punishment for the wickedness of sin. 
And we know that God is perfect in his justice. And he is faultless in his wrath. But we get so tainted to sin's wickedness because it is all around us. We are just like a fish that doesn't understand that it's wet. Because that's all it knows is dampness. Because we live in a world of sin. Because the most righteous in our lives, those that we look to are sinners. All of justice is not perfect here on earth. We lose sight of what is holy and what is wicked. If we view our sin through the lens of hell, then we begin to grasp how God views our sin. If we focus on those graphic terms, and that is the punishment, then we will understand the crime that deserves such punishment. If we view our rebellion, if we view our lack of love, if we view our impurity and our respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges calls them, with, and we, and we view them through the lens of weeping and gnashing of teeth and worms and unquenchable fire, then we will better understand sin's weight. Why don't we get offended at our sin? Why does sin not upset us the way we wish it could or should? Can I suggest to you that we haven't focused enough on hell? If we are appalled and offended at the concept of hell, then we can be sure that we have not viewed our sin correctly. Finally and fourth, the reality of hell should cause us to be thankful. We should skip out of this auditorium today. Hey, what did he preach on? He preached on hell. Why are you skipping out? Because I am so thankful. It is so easy for us to grow discontented and to complain because of the disappointment and the pain that comes from living in this sin-cursed world. Genesis 3 onward, there is a difficulty in this life. Our focus can so easily be on the things that we don't have that we want or the things that we're burdened with that we have. And yet the scriptures are clear that we are to rejoice always and in everything give thanks. How does one accomplish such a task? Can I suggest to you that the one who rejoices and the one that is constantly thankful is the one that recognizes what they deserved but aren't getting? If we understand the reality of hell, if we understand its horrors, if we understand its torment, if we realize that we are rightly and justly destined for that place, but God intervened, but God loved us, that God forgave us, that not only are we not going there, but that he left 2,000 years ago to begin to prepare a place where we could spend eternity with him, that changes the gratefulness in one's heart. You're able to view the disappointment, the, 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 the shattered dreams, the pain, the, the hurt here on earth. Jesus took the cup of wrath for us. 
He drank that judgment for us on the cross. He was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and his soul was anguished so that I could rejoice, so so, so that I could call God my Father, so that I could, could put on the righteous clothing of Jesus and he could say, well done, No matter what we face, God in his kindness saved us from a place of eternal conscious punishment for the wicked. And our hearts should be filled with gratitude and praise. But our thankfulness doesn't end there. We can be thankful that hell, we can be thankful because hell is also the place where God brings justice. God will judge wickedness. Many of you are experiencing things that aren't just, that aren't fair. God will judge sin. Romans chapter 12, as Paul is talking about living a life that is a living sacrifice, he comes to the end of chapter 12 and he says, never return evil for evil. Do what's right in the sight of men. As far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. He's telling us to righteously handle mistreatment. He's telling us that we can't play the same game they're playing. And then Paul mentions, then Paul refers, then Paul points the reader to hell. And he says, leave room for the wrath of God. He will bring about just and perfect judgment. So we can be thankful. We can praise him for his justice. We can praise him for his mercy and grace. Friends, as we ponder anew the doctrine of hell, may it be more than just a mental exercise for you. May it be more than just a a doctrinal correction or a doctrinal affirmation. May it cause us to evaluate our own hearts. Have I truly believed? Have I truly placed my faith on the life and death and resurrection of Christ. May it cause us to share the gospel, to go into that relationship that we have, we have kept from sharing the gospel because we've been afraid about how we are viewed or how we'll be treated. And may it push us to share Christ. May it cause us to view sin rightfully. May sin grieve us. May it cause us to praise God for his holiness, his justice, his grace, and his mercy. And may it cause us to skip out of this room. Let's pray. Lord, hell is terrifying. But the Bible says that you're a terrifying God. That we should be terrified because we are sinning against you. We are clenched. grasping our fist and holding it up to you. You are so kind to love us, to forgive us, to grant us faith. Lord, may this truth of hell cause us to love you more. May it cause us to to deepen our faith in you. May it cause us to live righteously and to preach courageously. Lord, grant us 
the amazing knowledge that we no longer are headed there. And Lord, next week as we focus on where we are headed, we are even more grateful that you would grant such a place to us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.